This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, Will Haygood, author of Showdown, discusses how Thurgood Marshall reached the Supreme Court. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot explores changes at the Authors Guild. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. What do you got for us, Mark? So, um... It's kind of an interesting story. At number eight, this is Paula Dean Cuts the Fat, 250 Recipes Lightened Up. So this book is the first book out since Paula Dean's publisher dropped her. Mm. Uh, was it last year, two years ago, uh, for uh, racist comments uh, kitchen staff and others had heard her use. She went on to give a big apology on uh, on the news, on TV, and... Um, so after that, her publisher dropped her and she's coming out with this book from Paula Dean venture. So her own publishing house, Mm -hmm. it is on the bestseller list. Um, but at 7,000 copies, you know, for the first time on the list is while while still great is still not up to, uh, Paula D what the numbers Paula Dean is used to seeing. So, um, anyway, so that's that. And at number 13, accidental saints, finding God in all the wrong people, uh, by Nadia Bolz Weber. Uh, we say in our review that Bolz Weber, pastor of the house for all saints and sinners in Denver, Colorado presents a compulsively readable account of her meeting with many remarkable sinners who still retain the glimmers of God's grace. We've been seeing more and more religious-themed uh, titles on our bestseller list, and this, mm-hmm. is, this is one of them. So, um, And that's at number 13. At number 17, we have Chrissy Hine, Reckless, My Life as a Pretender. This book was embargoed, then the... Uh, Times, uh, I'm sorry, The Guardian, I believe it was in London, ran an interview with her where she uh, had uh, talked about, uh, I, I guess, um, herself being raped uh, in in college or, or, or at college and how she, she said basically that girls and women should just really look out for themselves, that they should you know mm. watch what they're wearing. So this, however she meant that, this really just blew up on all kinds of uh, social media and really kind of this this was like very newsworthy, obviously. So for music fans, we say Heinz autobiography has been a long anticipated event. It's here at last, but unfortunately, it's not quite worth the wait from our review. Not unlike the original lineup of The Pretenders, Heinz autobiography flames out just when it gets interesting. So she only takes it, basically the uh, reviewer, uh, the book only goes as far as when she, The Pretenders were first formed. So it starts when her life in the Midwest, uh, in Ohio, Akron, Ohio, and all the way to her going moving to London. So that's at number 17. So on the bestseller list anyway. And finally, the last book I'll talk about is 28, Black Earth, The Holocaust is History and Mourning. Uh, we gave it a starred review. This is by Timothy Snyder. We say this brilliant book, effectively a companion volume to Snyder's critically acclaimed 
2010 work Bloodlands focuses on the Jewish victims of the grotesque policies of the Nazis and their shifting allies in the lands of contested German, Soviets, and Poles. This is during the Holocaust. So, uh, starred review at number 28. And that's what's on the hardcover nonfiction list. Yes. All right. Well, on the hardcover fiction list, uh, we have a new number one. Um, this one is Make Me, a Jack Reacher novel by Lee Child. Uh, we gave this one a starred review. It's the 20th book in the Jack Reacher series, but we say it's superb. And, uh, it's a, a thriller in this obviously long-running series uh, set in the present day, which goes all over, in this case, Chicago, Arizona, Los Angeles, Silicon Valley, and to the Internet's netherworld called the Deep Web. Uh, we say that uh, some of the elements are gruesome and almost beyond belief, but Child's complete command of the story makes this thriller work brilliantly. So that's at number one, and uh, you know, the usual suspects are arrayed right under it. Uh, the Girl in the Spider's Web, is, uh, which was last week's number one, is now at number two. Ghost at a Watchman, X, uh, Daniel Steele's Undercover, The Girl on the Train, they're all still clustered together there at the top uh, but the lee child book has clearly outsold right. them all over fifty thousand copies sold in its first full week out great down at number 11 we have two years eight months and 28 nights by salman rushdie obviously very well known um, we also gave this a starred review and said that rushdie invents his own cultural narrative one that blends elements of a thousand and one nights Homeric epics, and also sci-fi and action-adventure comic books. And the the title, Two Years, Eight Months, and 28 Nights, is a reference to the magical stretch of time that unites the book's three periods. So each mm-hmm. each section of it uh, is set in a different time, uh, starting with the 12th century, um, then the present day, and uh, then later on set in a, a far future millennium uh, after a, a paranormal event has devastated our world. And he makes reference to Henry James, Mel Brooks, Mickey Mouse, Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Uh, we say he provides readers with an intellectual treasure chest cleverly disguised as a comic pop culture apocalyptic caprice. Right. So that sounds uh, quite entertaining for just about anyone. And uh, that's their number 11. The review sounds very alliterative. Yes, indeed. I, that, that review's fun to read. Yeah. Which, you know, we do strive for. Right. We want to entertain our readers. And uh, we've got a, a couple of other thrillers lower down on the list at 13 and 14. Uh, at 13, we have the Robert B. Parker's The Devil Wins, which is a new Jesse Stone novel written by Reed Farrell Coleman, building on the work of the late... Robert B. Parker, a legendary mystery writer. Um, and then just below it is Devoted in Death uh, by J.D. Robb, a near-future thriller, the 41st book in her series starring Lieutenant Eve Dallas. Uh, and uh, just below, down at 19, is Dance of the Bones, a J.P. Beaumont and Brandon Walker novel by J.A. Jantz. We gave this a star, too. Lots of big books, um, lots of great books on the bestseller list. This is her 51st novel, and uh, we say this one brings together two of her popular series characters in a highly entertaining plot that honors them both. So, you know, this could just be for series fans. Uh, We say there's an energetic plot resplendent with believable twists, leaving readers eager for the next outline. Mm, Great. Moving down a little bit, number 23, Trigger Mortis by Anthony Horowitz. Um, This is a James Bond novel. Uh, We say it's an impressive pastiche and 
gave it a starred review. So, uh, you know, if if you want to go shopping this week, you could do worse than to just take our bestseller list along as a as a shopping list. Um, and uh, this one's set in 1957, soon after the action of Goldfinger, and a German rocket scientist working for the U.S. sells some secrets about a forthcoming American launch. Uh, we said Horowitz delivers an excellent mimicry of Fleming's prose and entertainment sure to please James Bond fans. And uh, moving down a little bit, down at number 32, another book we gave a starred review to, Best Boy by Eli Gottlieb. Um, this is more of a literary novel. Uh, there are definitely some suspense elements, um, but this, uh, this one is set at a therapeutic community for people with autism and features a man who's lived there for more than 40 years. He's known as the village elder. Uh, but uh, when a new roommate and a new staff member show up, his quiet life begins to unravel and uh, we say that uh, this book is written with a spectacular voice oscillating between casual and obsessive and frequently challenging the stereotypes that haunt people with autism and similar conditions the story will appeal to a very broad range of readers it's a fast read and the plot is never less than captivating so uh, that's definitely one to look out for um another book that got a lot of attention in the press but that uh, we did not entirely love is fear of dying by erica jong at n number 38 this is more than 40 years after the publication of fear of flying and uh it it's not quite a sequel it's uh you know got some of the uh similar elements but um definitely is its own book and uh we say that uh what makes this a sequel is that the heroine who's um, kind of exploring her emotional and sexual consciousness posts an ad on com, a name ripped off from uh, her best friend Isadora Wing, who was the one who coined the term zipless to, as we say delicately, describe a certain kind of one night encounter <laughs> in the original Fear of Flying. So uh, we say that uh, with Isadora, Jong ushered in a bold new way for women to talk about their sex lives, and it's canny of her to tie this back to Isadora's quest. But unfortunately, the narrator of this story is less interesting um, and more self-absorbed. So we say, unfortunately, the only feeling you have when it's over is relief. Alas. And finally, I just wanted to note um, two books back-to-back -back at 41 and 42. These are uh, for the science fiction fans out there. 41 is the autobiography of James T. Kirk, um, yeah. which uh, you know, it's, it's subtitled The Story of Starfleet's Greatest Captain, because, you know, James T. Kirk would be more than happy to refer to himself right. in such a way, <laughs> written uh, or you know, ostensibly edited or right. you know, written with the assistance of David A. Goodman. Um, so that's one for the Star Trek folks and, uh, and, and for the Star Wars folks, just below it is William Shakespeare's Tragedy of the Sith's Revenge, Star Wars Part the Third. Uh, so you know, this is finally concluding Quirk Books' uh, right. series Shake of Shakespearean renditions of Star Wars. Right. So with the new movie coming out, I'm sure they're waiting eagerly oh, yes. for the chance to put it in iambic pentameter. <laughs> so that's what we've got uh, on the hardcover fiction list. Great. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Will Haygood tells us about the showdown that changed America's judiciary forever. We'll be right back. I'm Naomi Jackson, author of The Star Side of Bird Hill, 
and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Will Haygood on the line. His new book is Showdown, Thurgood Marshall and the Supreme Court Nomination that Changed America. Will, I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you. Great to be here. So what initially drew you to Thurgood Marshall as the subject of a book? Uh, Well, um, as one who was born in the Seminole year of 1954, which was when the Brown v. Board of Education school desegregation decision came down, um, as you're growing older, uh, if you were born in that year, 1954, it always weighs on your mind. You heard about it in junior high and high school and in college. And uh, I sort of always knew that I wanted to, uh, once I became a, a serious nonfiction writer, that I always wanted to circle back to 1954 and find a way into the Third Grit Marshall story. But I have this nonlinear hunger to tell nonfiction stories. So I needed sort of a hook, a sideways to go into the story. And since no one had written about his uh, very contentious 1967 confirmation hearings, I thought that that was my hook. And so that's what I focused on. It seems amazing that no one's ever written about it before because it was such a big deal. Yes, I, I think that... Um, uh, since Marshall was the first African-American to get onto the Supreme Court, that became the story in most of the uh, uh, nonfiction narratives. Uh, they wanted to focus on uh, his period on the Supreme Court since he had reached the legal mountaintop. Um, uh, what did he do once he had reached that mountaintop? Uh, and so I think that became a magnet for nonfiction writers. Uh, but uh, that wasn't my way into the Marshall story. Uh, uh, he was in the Senate hearing room for five days, stretched across 14 days. And um, before Thurgood Marshall, the, the hearings for a Supreme Court nominee at the most, had lasted one day. Mm. So his were five days stretched out over 14 days, and uh, and the most powerful people on the Senate Judiciary Committee were Southern segregationists who loathed Marshall because of the 1954 school decision that changed, in theory, the face of the South. So tell us uh, about this contentious time. Uh, what was it like right there during those 14 days? Uh, tell us some of the, uh, the the people who were uh, really arguing against Thurgood Marshall. Yes, well, uh, first of all, the uh, chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee was James Eastland of Mississippi. And he had uh, said many times before the hearing started that Thurgood Marshall was, to him, public enemy number one. Uh, and so this this senator is now the one setting the tone of the hearings. 
And the second most powerful person on that committee was Senator John McClellan of Arkansas. And where did the first uh, visceral reaction to the 1954 school case take place? In Little Rock, when the nine uh, black students tried to integrate Central High School. So the Arkansas senator saw that all, uh, um, all a spark from what Thurgood Marshall had done. And then you had Senator Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, who had run on the Dixie Crack ticket in 1948 um, for the White House. Uh, and so you had these powerful segregationists who were hell-bent on stopping the good marshal. Um, you had Lyndon Johnson, Southern-born president, who was... Um, uh, strongly intent on integrating the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and you had anti-Vietnam protests going on in the streets. Uh, you had uh, many blacks upset uh, that the 1964 civil rights bill wasn't being strongly enacted in the Deep South. Uh, and there's still... Uh, were problems with the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Um, there were still threats against people in the South. And now, all of a sudden, you have this surprise announcement from President Johnson that he's going to nominate Thurgood Marshall to the high court. Johnson did not let it leak out. Uh, there really was no opening on the court. Uh, Johnson had, uh, had uh, enticed uh, Associate Justice Tom Clark to step aside. Johnson had known Clark, fellow Texan, for years, and uh, Johnson encouraged him to leave the court. Uh, it's a lifetime appointment, and Associate Justice Clark was not sick. He had not told his family that he was going to step down, uh, but uh, um, uh, but he was encouraged to. And uh, we all know that. Uh, LBJ um, uh, was a very domineering figure, and uh, he had a lot of admiration for Thurgood Marshall, and he wanted him on the high court. You know, I'd never heard that about um, Tom Clark deciding to step down, in, in, in a sense, before his time. Do, do we have any mm -hmm. idea what was, what was going on with him beyond Johnson kind of strong-arming him? Um, yes, Tom Clark's son was Ramsey Clark, and uh, LBJ wanted to move Ramsey Clark into the position of attorney general, uh, mm. but he knew that there was going to be a uh, conflict of interest, uh, so to say, uh, if he had uh, uh, Tom Clark still on the bench. Uh, and so it, um, LBJ appealed to Associate Justice Tom Clark from the father-son angle. Now, look, I know you want your boy mm -hmm. to become attorney general, but I can't do it as long as you're sitting on the court. And if you step down, actually, um, I think that would be a wonderful thing. 
uh, you and your wife will be uh, very proud of him, uh, and it'll be a great thing for uh, for everybody concerned. Um, and it just so happens that uh, Tom Clark and his wife were sent on in around the world fact-finding mission uh, on behalf of the White House. And so it was like a tour that they had fun hmm. going on this around the world trip. So I want to pull back just a little bit. I mean, throughout the book, you use flashbacks of uh, Marshall's life to, to kind of tell of his rise. So, so to talk a little bit about his childhood. Uh, yes, uh, born in, uh, in very segregated uh, Baltimore, Maryland. Um, uh, parents, uh, mother, school teacher, father was a uh, waiter. They really wanted their two sons to go to college um, and to strive. And uh, Marshall went to Lincoln, Lincoln University. And uh, when he came out, uh, he went to... Howard University Law School. Uh, he wasn't a serious student when he was at Lincoln. Uh, he played around a lot, but he was one of those kind of students. He could play around and and spend a lot of time having fun and still get straight A's. Mm. Uh, and at Howard uh, at Howard University Law School, uh, he graduated first in his class, um, and uh, he loved the law. Uh, he, uh, uh, when he was 19 years old, uh, in his hometown, uh, he had a, a summer job working in a hat store and, uh, he was on one of the trolley cars and the trolley car driver told him to go to the back where blacks were supposed to stand. And Marshall had these hats mm -hmm. uh, uh, from the store. And he said, sir, I can't move back there because there are so many people in these hats who will fall and, and they might get smashed. And, uh, and there was an argument and Thurgood was arrested. Uh, he was 19 uh, for not moving to the back of the bus, you might say. And the store owner came down, and uh, he got their good marshal out of jail. But uh, that was a real turning point for Marshall. Um, and so after law school, uh, uh, he worked um, as a fledgling lawyer. And then after two years of being out of law school, uh, he went to New York City and joined the NAACP. Uh, and looking around the country, uh, he was traveling a lot, uh, filing state lawsuits, federal lawsuits, lawsuits on behalf of blacks uh, uh, in the arenas of voting, uh, jobs, and crime. I mean, just the whole array of... Um, of, uh, uh, of rights that were being uh, denied blacks. And uh, uh, so Marshall was sort of like this vaudeville figure, always on the road. I mean, he stayed on the road filing suits 
in Mississippi, in Louisiana, in Texas. So he came up with this idea. He said, um, what I need to do is, is form a legal unit of the NAACP, and that way we'll be nonpartisan. Uh, we can raise money, and we can file lawsuits all over this nation uh, because his ultimate goal was to uh, knock asunder, uh, was to destroy Plessy v. Ferguson, which was, you know, which was the law that said separate was equal. And so Marshall established the NAACP Legal Defense and, and Educational Fund and uh, that was his mission. He came up with this mission that I will find top-flight lawyers, black and white lawyers, women and men throughout the country, and uh, they will let me know uh, which cases are important and which lawsuits we should file. And uh, he would let some people uh, uh, do a lot of the advance work, and then he would go in there with his star power. And uh, uh, he had some seminal victories uh, in front of the Supreme Court in uh, 1944, uh, Smith v. Allwright, which, and this is an important case because Smith v. Allwright uh, was the Texas Democratic primary case, and uh, blacks have been forbidden to vote in it. But Marshall won. In the case called Smith v. Allwright, he took it to the Supreme Court and he won. So blacks now could vote in the Democratic primary. One of the people who they voted for in large numbers in 1958 was the young U.S. Senator Lyndon B. Johnson. And Lyndon B. Johnson knew uh, that he would always be in debt to Thurgood Marshall because of that, of that case. Uh, and there was another case, uh, Sweat v. Painter, which Thurgood Marshall uh, sued to integrate the University of Texas Law School. Shelley v. Kramer, a famous housing case. And, of course, uh, his titanic victory, the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education case. That was a case that made Thurgood Marshall famous. And in 1955, he landed on the cover of Time magazine. But he had done many other famous things before then. Uh, uh, he had survived death threats throughout the South. He kept going back. He was very brave. Uh, really, it, it is a remarkable story. And so then one day in 1967, he comes face-to-face -face in Senate hearing room 2228, in the U.S. Senate office building, he comes face to face with the most powerful men in the U.S. Senate. And these were the men who hated his guts. And so uh, in that room, uh, history started to swirl. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. 
Welcome back. We're talking with Will Haygood, author of Showdown, Thurgood Marshall and the Supreme Court nomination that changed America. So you've got me on the edge of my seat here, um, wanting to know what happened with with this face off between this incredibly talented, experienced attorney, obviously entirely qualified to sit on the court and these men who really wanted to keep him off of it. Yes, yes. Um, It was a... Uh, well, it was a showdown, and that is the title of the book. One of the things that frightened the White House after the first day of hearings, uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson said, uh-oh, Thurgood's in trouble. And Lyndon Johnson uh, went behind the scenes and um, started talking to another African-American attorney, William Coleman. Uh, uh, who I interviewed, uh, he's in his 90s now, sharp, still sharp, uh, and uh, he was summoned secretly to the White House, and he was told by the White House staff, look, Thurgood might not make it. Uh, these people are really digging in, uh, um, and he might not make it, uh, and we need you to tell us that you are willing to become an alternate. Now, William Coleman had been one of the young attorneys who had worked on the Brown uh, school case uh, uh, in 1954. Uh, actually, they had started working on that case as far back as 1951. But William Coleman said, oh, my goodness, um, look, uh, I love Thurgood. Uh, he's the giant. Uh, he should be on the court. He's qualified. Um, uh, but uh, I wouldn't feel right. Uh, for you to uh, nominate me if he uh, if he doesn't make it, uh, I want you to keep working at this uh, very hard, and I will do my best as a Republican attorney who happens to be black. I will do my best to to try to convince senators across the aisle in both parties uh, to support Marshall. Uh, but one of the tricky things is that James Eastland of Mississippi uh, would never tell uh, Marshall or the White House at the end of each day if it was the end of the hearings or not. Uh, they would have to wait until the middle of the night or till early the next morning at 7 o'clock or so to get word from him uh, the hearings will resume uh, this morning at 10 a.m., report to room 2228. And that was done to keep Marshall and the White House staff nervous. Uh, and uh, uh, Eastland allowed no witnesses uh, for Marshall. Uh, he, uh, he just didn't. Uh, and Strom Thurmond uh, started talking about interracial uh, marriages. Uh, and Strom Thurmond uh, knew that Thurgood Marshall's wife uh, was uh, of uh, Filipino descent. And so Strom Thurmond had uh, brought interracial marriage into the hearing room. Uh, this is the same Strom Thurmond who had uh, fathered a child uh, uh, with his uh, uh, black maid, with the family's black maid. Of course, in 1967, uh, no one knew about that. Um, and so the hearings 
went on and Marshall by the third day was getting very upset, not knowing if he was going to make it. But one of the things that was great was that Phil Hart, Senator from Michigan, who was a uh, staunch liberal, uh, a very passionate man, uh, encouraged blacks everywhere to write letters to the White House uh, and to write letters to these Southern senators. And uh, the Senate was flooded with letters on behalf of um, Marshall. Uh, and uh, it started to work. Not that the Southern senators were ready to change their mind, but uh, uh, it made the White House really dig in. And the turning point was this. Lyndon Johnson, a wonderful president when it came to civil rights, got on the phone and he convinced 20 Southern senators not to vote on the day of the vote in the full Senate. Wow. Now, that's a radical thing because senators go to Washington to vote. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's their job. But LBJ said, look, uh, you know, there's a dam that you want built next year. I might not be able to find the money for it if you don't vote for my man. It was horse trading. It was playing chess of the highest order. And um, those 20 senators uh, didn't leave their house that day. It's just amazing. They did not vote. Um, and uh, But it's still, I mean, in the end, it was 62 to 11, which seems close, but not uh, from the arcane rules of the Senate. Because if the uh, Southerners had of um, had of stopped the White House at sixty, they would. That meant that they could uh, start a uh, filibuster, uh, which would have uh, talked the Marshall nomination to death. So, so in the end, the Southerners were only a few votes shy from a filibuster. And so it was a nail-biter right down to the end. And, uh, and riots erupted uh, throughout the South and in uh, Detroit, Michigan, on the last day of the hearings. Um, and so it was all full of drama. And the um, uh, Marshall, uh, he made it onto the court. Really fascinating story. And, and, and Thurgood Marshall is just one of uh, similar subject to biographies you've written. I mean, you've written books on some of those influential, in some cases, misunderstood African-Americans. You have Adam Clayton Powell, Sugar Ray Robinson, and, of course, one of my personal favorites, Sammy Davis Jr. What, what draws you to, to, to such figures? Wonderful question. I, I, I just see uh, such drama uh, in their stories, uh, uh, they each uh, fought hard to convince America uh, that uh, I am as red, white, and blue as anybody. Um, each one of those, I mean, Sugar Ray Robinson, Sammy Davis Jr., uh, Congressman Powell, and Thurgood Marshall, uh, they each had to fight in the public eye to be respected. And um, I think that I think that, that drove them. Uh, that gave them an edge. 
uh, it added to their talents. Those are hard journeys, but those kind of journeys uh, make for good storytelling if you're a uh, nonfiction writer. I mean, there's a lot of meat uh, on the bones of each of those lies. And Marshall was the supreme of all of them. He was the supreme. No Marshall, uh, no laws that were changed. Uh, uh, and there's something uh, uh, very magisterial about each of those journeys. Uh, and um, and it's been it's been a a remarkable quartet uh, of stories to tell in these four books. I told a real little story about this uh, White House butler, uh, Eugene Allen, and it's very poignant to me that on the day of uh, Burger Marshall's nomination at the White House, one of the butlers who was working uh, and who served Thurgood Marshall and the other people in the White House happened to be Eugene Allen. And I think about that often. Allen worked in the White House for eight presidents, and he could not have envisioned a Thurgood Marshall when he first started working under Harry Truman. And so now... All these years later, here he is staring at the very man who worked to change uh, his life. By telling these stories that I've told, I really think um, that I've told the story of this country mm. and, and used them as uh, spokeswheels, as the, as the swirling uh, wheel, an uh, entertainer, a politician, a sports figure, and the lawyer. That's the four corners. And of course, you have the butler, who's kind of the, in ways, the uh, the hub for, right. for at least a couple of them. And of course, we're referring to your book, The Butler, A Witness to History, which was also the basis for the movie uh, of the same uh, title. Um, yep. I, I, I do want to ask, how did you come across Eugene Allen? Was this during your uh, research uh, for, the, uh, for the for showdown? Uh, no, I was uh, I was working on the staff of the Washington Post, and in 2008, and I was covering uh, I was covering the campaign of uh, Senator Obama, and I was in North Carolina at one of his rallies. He was down in the polls, and Hillary Clinton uh, Senator Hillary Clinton was still in the race. Uh, he was battling it out with her. Anyway, I was at this rally, and I walked outside. And there were three young ladies, and they were crying. And I asked them if there was anything I could do because they had been inside of the rally. And they said, uh, no, we're crying because our fathers have kicked us out of our homes because we support that candidate inside on stage. And they were three young white ladies, uh, mm -hmm. white, uh, white college students, and, of course, He's black, and um, it was a very emotional story for me uh, listening to them uh, because they were uh, they were so courageous. Uh, their fathers had thrown them out of their homes because they wanted to support this African American candidate. And I said to myself, 
right then and there, I said, Obama's going to win because that's a movement right there. And I just went out on a limb and, and I told my editor, I said, hey, uh, he's going to win. And my editor said, no, nah, no, he's not. Uh, he's going to make a good showing, but he's not going to win. And I said, no, 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 he's going to win. And I want to find somebody from the pages of history, somebody who worked in the White House before the 1964 Civil Rights Bill was passed. And I want to do a story about their life. And I, and I told my editor, I said, it can be somebody who worked in the White House laundry room or in the Rose Garden, or it could be a maid. And the, this last words just dripped out of my mouth. I said, or it can be a butler. Hmm. And I don't even know why to this day why I said that. I, 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 I just did. Uh, and I went searching uh, for such a person, and somebody told me there was a man by the name of uh, Eugene Allen, who had worked for two presidents, maybe three, at the White House in the 60s. Well, they were wrong. When I, when I finally tracked him down, um, he told me his life story, and he had actually worked for eight presidents, eight, from Harry Truman Gosh. to Ronald Reagan. And wow. uh, uh, he had never told his story. He lived in Washington, D.C., on a little quiet street in a humble home with his wife. And uh, I interviewed him uh, on the Friday before the election uh, in 2008. I spent the whole day with he and his wife. They took me, uh, he took me down the basement uh, where he had a room that was like a miniature Smithsonian. It had all of these White House artifacts. He had a Stetson hat from Lyndon Johnson. He had a tie from Mrs. Kennedy that her husband had been wearing the day before he was assassinated. Uh, he had um, five or 6,000 photographs from White House dinners, state dinners, events that he had worked. It was just astonishing. Uh, and I said to him, Mr. Allen, you mean to tell me that nobody has ever told your life story? And uh, he took a step closer to me, and he put his arm on my shoulder, and he said, well, if you think I'm worthy, you'll be the first. And I nearly got a tear in my eye. I mean, this man who had uh, worked at the White House, never missed a day of work in 34 years, the snow or the riots or, or weather, never missed a single day. Uh, he worked at 1600. 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, the most powerful address in the world. And he could go back home to his native Virginia in the 50s and couldn't try on a suit in the store because of the color of his skin. And yet he went back to work every day. He believed in his country more than his country sometimes believed in him. Uh, and that's the genuine beauty of that story. Uh, so I interviewed him on a Friday. The election is the following Tuesday, but the day before the election, I call him and his wife to say hello and to see how the photo assignment that I had set up went for them. And he said, she's gone. And I said, excuse me? He said, my wife, she's gone. And I said, uh, she's gone where, Mr. Allen? He said, she died last night. 
in her sleep. And uh, it was just, I mean, she died the day before the election. And it was heartbreaking. I mean, they had been married 65 years. And uh, so the story appeared on the front page of the Washington Post. And the uh, 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 transition team of the new administration uh, saw it. And they invited Mr. Allen uh, to the inauguration. He had a VIP seat, and I went with him. And uh, when he saw the first African-American take the oath of office, he leaned over to me and he said, I worked 34 years at the White House, and this is the first inauguration that I've ever been invited to. And so it's uh, it's a nice circle, you might say, you know, uh, sitting there with him and, 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 and watching watching history like that. So he was a figure of history himself. We've been talking with Will Haygood, and I wish we could keep talking all day. These stories are wonderful, but you can find much more in his book, Showdown, which is in stores right now. Will, thank you so much for joining us. This has been fantastic. It was an honor, and thank both of you. Thank you, Will. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about how the Authors Guild is changing. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Elsa Hart, the author of Jade Dragon Mountain, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here once again, uh, this time telling us about the exciting changes at the uh, Authors Guild. Hello, Jim. Hello, Mark. Hello, Rose. Hello, Jim. It's always nice to have you here. So the Authors Guild sent out this survey to its members, and uh, the responses have been kind of shaking things up. What's happening with that? Yes, Rose. They, they, it was a survey conducted in the uh, spring, and it was the first one they've done of their membership in six years or so. So it took a look at their uh, average income for from their writing, mm-hmm. putting aside all other things. And they found that the median income for its membership fell about 24% between wow. uh, 2009 and 2014. And what were some of these numbers? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the reason they really like to, they look to the most is uh, the ebook royalty rate. Mm. Um, now, this is something they have been fighting publishers for pretty much since the ebook began in 2009-2010. They're, they're pretty clear-cut in identifying one of the major big uh, reasons for the decline, and it's when the ebook royalty rate was instituted at 25%. Mm-hmm. It, it's well below what they feel is uh, it's fair. Got it. And, and just remind our listeners, what's the standard rate on print? Is well, print does fluctuate, but their, their point here is that they feel uh, it should be, you know, they want to go to 50%. Wow. Um, because of all the manufacturing costs that are cut out of the ebook process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in early days, I mean, publishers would say, well, it was still, um, there still need to do the print, so there is still manufacturing costs. But as the ebooks have become a greater slice of the overall industry, uh, that the authors are having a harder time accepting, accepting that argument. And, 
it's significant also because as ebooks become a bigger part of the industry and have become uh, a lot more of the revenue is going to ebook so the advance he used to eating up um the royalties they would get on the print right that makes a lot of sense you know working here at publishers weekly we all see these big huge six seven figure deals that are going on but but after the survey they realized how little the majority of writers really make. Well, it's sobering, Mark. It is sobering. Um, the, the last one found that the average median income for all the members who participated in the survey, which I think was about 1400 or so, was $8,000. Now, of course, uh, there are some outliers out there that sure. made, you know, uh, a lot more. Right. Um, but I think it, it, you have to take it as a, a fair assessment of what, most typical writers would uh, would earn, particularly if you're thinking nonfiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people, nonfiction writers, are it's their second job for most. I mean, a lot of them are professors, right. journalists, you know, TV broadcasters, or, or whatever, memoir writers. Um, so it is a secondary income. But right. on the fiction side, you know, numbers are. Are pretty comparable to this, so it does point out that it's hard to rely just on just on writing alone, right? For to to make a living. Now, what do we know about the members of the Authors Guild? Are they sort of evenly distributed across the industry? Or are you going to find mostly fiction authors, mostly nonfiction authors? No, it's pretty evenly distributed um, in terms of that. Um, more in the trade, but they do have some, you know, academic uh, writers as well. Um, but one thing that was interesting and dovetails with the survey we did of PW's own writers or readers is that uh, it has an older membership. Eighty-nine mm. percent uh, of the people who responded to the survey were over fifty years old. Wow. Um, so one of the things they're they're doing is getting more involved, I hope, and trying to get out there and spread the message about the Authors Guild and what it has to offer. Uh, they'll be at, uh, I think it's in Los Angeles next year, the AUWP uh, conference. They're going to be right. on two panels. They have other events planned for some of the major cities uh, across the, the states uh, the rest of the, the year and into next year. Um, just trying to get the Authors Guild mem- uh, message out there about the services they offer, which are you know pretty extensive, you know. Um, one of the the most sought after services is they do do uh, for legal services like contract reviews mm-hmm. of standard uh, of standard contracts, and that's I think is their their number one priority for right. most of the authors who who uh, who take part in in the organization. And um, you know that's something else that's come up. It's that they did this membership survey, but they've also started something in the summer called the Fair Contract Initiative. And what it is, is a series of commentaries written by executives over the Authors Guild pointing out what they think are worn-out standard boilerplate clauses throughout, mm. the, uh, throughout the standard contract. And it does start with the, the royalty rate for e-books. Right, right. <laughs> but it does include stuff like copyright and concerns for piracy and out-of-print um, Which is clauses. a big thing, and that's been a big question, too. What constitutes out-of-print if 
you know, you could turn it in, you know, if it becomes an ebook. I mean, when if your digital backlist lasts, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and that was addressed. That was addressed relatively early on in the whole. Well, it's kind of ebook print on demand thing. Um, With with it's sort of settling around. Well, if they're selling X number of copies per year, it could still be considered in print. Right. Um, But you know, that's certainly something. I'm sure it's worthwhile being looked at again. Right. Well, that sounds uh, very interesting. I'm just, uh, you know, I don't know a lot about the Authors Guild because I'm over in the genre fiction world. And so people might be talk about being members of the science fiction fantasy writers of America or romance writers of America. But I don't hear a lot of people in genre fiction um, mentioning the Authors Guild. Does it is it trying to expand to include people who might have been in more specialized um writers groups is that part of the outreach effort no yeah absolutely um they have about nine nine thousand members now and over the last couple years they have started accepting um self-published and hybrid authors Mm -hmm. um, that's a big change yes definitely in recognition of um you know the changes that have been brought about by by that sort of technology and innovation and the only requirement really is if if you're a self-publisher or hybrid is uh, that you earn $5,000 annually from your income, writing. Mm-hmm. So it could be was what books. It could well also be magazines or blogs or freelance efforts. Right. So they're really trying to um, you know, bring in more, more authors into the, into the fold, with, certainly with the expectation that if you, the more the merrier and the more clout they might have, you know, right. trying to talk to... It's not just publishers. You know, it's, it's the government. Um, they would like to see some copyright reform, certainly, make it a little more flexible. Um, you know, they certainly have a viewpoint on piracy, which is that piracy is bad <laughs> and that, right. um, you know, the publishers should be out there more actively asking Google to uh, take down all these pirated things that they see, you know, the takedown notice thing. Um, so there's a lot of issues that, that, you know, they could use some more membership and some more backing for Right. And you know, five thousand dollars that's not very far below that median number. Yeah, no, it's that's, not. <laughs> that's like middle income for, wow. for writers. That's and, like, well <laughs> it's that's uh uh one of the things that when they and released this study that they pointed out was the poverty level is eleven thousand dollars. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, and when right. when you're looking at um the median for uh full time authors is you know, seventeen thousand five hundred that's that's not a lot, and that's before you're paying all your own taxes and paying for your own health insurance. Social security. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So you know, it's uh, it's not the easiest field to navigate. Okay? <laughs> right. Really right. not. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. But that's why we need advocates. So. Absolutely, and you know, and they did do you know some soundings of the membership, and you know, the number one priority was you know advocating for authors' rights. Right. Um, and one of that is with you know trying to. Uh, trying to give us the publishers to, to treat them a little more fairly um, and that really to adjust for the way the industry has changed over the years in terms of, you know, the contract boilerplate and, and royalties. And it's interesting, you know, they, they do mention sales lost to piracy as, as an issue, but I've certainly heard people argue that, uh, you know, if, if you're only selling 
5,000 copies of your book or 500 copies of your book, then obscurity is your enemy and you should be grateful for anything that puts your book in the hands of the, the reader. Are there, are there any arguments over that going on within the Authors Guild or are they just very firmly on the piracy is bad? And I know, from what I can tell, they are pretty firmly <laughs> uh, in the camp that uh, piracy is bad. And, you know, they do have a lot of the best-selling authors there. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, right. you know, Scott Turow was the leader for quite a while, right. and I'm pretty sure most of your, your brand-name authors are part of there. So it is a concern to them. Yeah. Um, I, for one... <laughs> I've never really believed piracy is good in any way, shape, or form. Um, But it's really hard to document how much is lost to piracy. I mean, how can you tell? Right. I mean, publishers that go out there, and you do hear them say that, well, we issued, making this up, but, you know, 10 takedown notices last week. But they do issue, there are a lot of takedown notices that go out. So, I mean, you kind of have, you kind of guess what might, might be lost to, to piracy in, right. in that vein. And there are, you know, certainly publishers aren't ignoring it. Um, but it, you don't hear it brought up as much as it used to in, at industry meetings and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I feel like I hear more conversations about how books are competing with apps or movies or games for the, the attention of, of, you know, the media consumer yeah, rather than how legit books are competing with pirated books. Right. No, I, I think that's definitely true. Um, but again, I mean, they're aware of that. And, you know, some of it is, you know, in, in the copyright realm, what do things need to be changed to address, you know, what's going on on the net? And the, the Authors Guild is definitely in favor of copyright reform. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and telling us what's going on with that. It'll be uh, interesting to see whether their their contract efforts in particular get any traction in the industry. Yeah, it will be, Rose. I mean, they've talked about wanting to set up meetings for some of the major houses, but uh, as of today, they have not. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you think that 50% royalty rate is really going to go anywhere? Uh... Not this year. <laughs> Not this year. <laughs> little hedge there, Greg. Well, Jim, thanks so much. Always great to have you on the show. All right. Thanks, guys. And now a final word from our sponsors. I'm Naomi Novik, author of Uprooted, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Ron Stodgill, author of Where Everybody Looks Like Me. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 